If you're new with us today, we're we're in a series through the Acts of the Apostles. We're we've titled this series "Turning the World Upside Down." That's a from a quote in chapter 17 of Acts. And uh, want to remind you that all of our sermons are available on YouTube at LifePoint Church of Olympia and at uh, mylpcoli.com forward slash media. And in your program today, there is a form for taking notes. You can also find that form at mylpcoli.com forward slash notes. Um, I want to say a couple of things before we get into the word. First of all, in your program this morning is is this uh, insert, and this is a way for you to volunteer to serve uh, here at LifePoint Church. Our fall programs are just around the corner, and there is a place for you to serve. And if you uh, if you have an idea of where you'd like to serve, that'll this will be an easy form for you to fill out. Um, but if you don't know, at the bottom at the back it says, I don't know, I need help figuring it out. And, and we're happy to, to sit down with you and talk with you and pray with you and decide where that is. But you know what? Um, there are so many ways you can serve here at LifePoint, and some of them are small and, um, and, and, and important, and others are more complex, but um, we would love for you to make an investment here and allow God to use you. I, I really believe that um, that what God wants from us is that we would just step up and say, "Here I am, Lord. How can you use me?" And then, and then allow Him to do that, uh, and He will. Um, just, just here, here's just one of those simple things. This morning when I arrived, the the, uh, the sidewalk out there was just covered with gravel from the play area, right? So. I was out there with a broom this morning. Didn't mind doing that. I was here, was here early, but, um, you know, there, there, there are so many different ways you can serve here that, um, make a real difference. And so I hope you'll consider that. Um, that form also that's in your program this morning is also available online at mylpcoli.com forward slash serve. Would you stand with me and let's read our scripture together this morning? It's a long one, so uh, pack a lunch here. Let's go. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people... Say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. 
No, but behold, after me is one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilty worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, I want to let you know that uh, this has been a challenging sermon for me to prepare because it's essentially a sermon about a sermon. And so, you know, we're we're reading the scriptures and and we can do that for ourselves. And and then I'm going to tell you what it says, right? Which is kind of a challenge in terms of not insulting your intelligence. But um, so you pray for me because uh, it's a challenge. I want to begin just with uh, some, what I'm just going to call some fun facts to know and share from verses 13 to 14, which kind of set the stage for this whole, um, this whole message. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now notice in verse 13, first of all, that, that it's no longer Barnabas and Saul, as we've seen for the last several chapters. No longer Barnabas and Saul. It's now Paul and his companions. Saul has begun using his Roman name Paul, as we saw last week, and he has emerged as the leader of this missionary team. Barnabas, whom we've come to know as Mr. Encourager, has accepted second billing. Um, and really kind of consistent with his character that, that he would be willing to take a step back. And then having concluded their mission on the island of Cyprus, uh, they set sail on a northward course and arrived in Perga on the Mediterranean coast in the Roman province of Pamphylia. And I had hoped to have a, a nice map this morning to show you that, but if you can picture Cyprus from your geography classes or the or, or from the last book of the Bible, which is known as the Book of Maps, um, you can you can just draw a direct line from the west coast 
or the west end of the island of Cyprus, directly north, and, and you'll end up there at um, at Perga. The ancient ruins of Perga are about 10 miles roughly northeast of modern Antalya, which is a, a stunningly beautiful resort town and Turkey's fifth most populated city. I hope someday to go and visit that area. Um, but it is it's just gorgeous. In the first century, Antalya was known as Italia and uh, was probably the port where Paul, Barnabas, and John disembarked. We know that it was the port from which they ended up returning back to uh, Antioch when they came back down the mountain. But their destination was Antioch in Pisidia. And in those days, the routes to Antioch and Pisidia began in Perga. So that's the first destination Luke mentions. Luke, Luke also tells us in verse 13 that it was in Perga that John Mark took leave of the missionary team and returned to Jerusalem. We saw last week that he had gone with uh, Paul and Barnabas to the island of Cyprus, was part of the team there. We're not told why he left, though, here at Perga. In chapter 15, verse 38, Luke tells us that Paul thought of John Mark's departure as a kind of desertion, that he had abandoned them. And so some have speculated that that John may have been homesick uh, or that he may have seen the massive massive and intimidating Taurus mountains that just rise up dramatically uh, behind Perga to the north. Uh, maybe decided that the rigors of that journey um, would have to, uh, w- would be just too much for him. Um, others have wondered whether John Mark may have had problems with a missionary strategy that took the gospel directly to the Gentiles, uh, or that he may have resented the fact that Paul had eclipsed his cousin Barnabas as the leader of the team. The fact is we just don't know. All we really know is that Perga was the end of the line for John Mark, um, this is the John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and then from Perga, he made his way back home to Jerusalem. Something else to consider here is that the Apostle Paul had, had was sick. He had fallen ill. Uh, we know that from his letter to the churches in the province of Galatia, um, which is where Pisidian Antioch, which was their destination, was. Uh, Paul wrote in chapter 4, verse 13, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And again, a little speculation, but some have theorized that Paul may have been suffering from an intense strain of malaria. Um, And this may have been the reason that they decided not to stay and evangelize Perga, um, but instead to escape the heat, the humidity of the coastal areas and make a 150-mile journey up and over the rugged Taurus mountain range to the cool of the plateau at about 3,600 feet altitude. Uh, would have been an exhausting journey. Would have been a dangerous one as well, uh, not just because of the natural elements, but because all of the routes through the mountains from Perga uh, up to Pisidian Antioch were known to be filled with bandits. And so difficult physically, but also potentially dangerous, and yet Paul and Barnabas pressed on. By the way, the, the same range of mountains, the Taurus range, happens to include the mountains of Ararat, where the book of Genesis tells us that Noah's ark uh, came to rest. But eventually, Paul and Barnabas arrived, apparently without incident, 
on the Taurus Plain, otherwise known as the Anatolian Plateau. They came to the city of Pisidian Antioch or Antioch of Pisidia. It must have been a, a long, arduous journey. They must have been exhausted, especially when you think about making a 150-mile journey uh, through the mountains on foot while you're suffering from malaria. Um, that's quite an, quite uh, an accomplishment. By the way, this is, uh, I mentioned uh, some weeks ago that um, there are 16 cities in the Middle East that are called Antioch, and uh, all of them named 300 years earlier by one of Alexander the Great's generals, um, Seleucus Nicator, in honor either of his father or his son, both of whom had the name Antiochus. And so he was a little obsessed. He named 16 different cities uh, Antioch. In the first century, this particular Antioch, Antioch of Pisidia, Pisidian Antioch, um, was declared a, a Roman colony and given another name, Colonia Caesarea. Um, Caesar, the Caesars, had, had a custom of, of honoring certain of the cities in the empire by making them retirement communities for Roman soldiers. Uh, especially high-ranking officers and providing them with homes for their families. And so Caesar had imported 3,000 veterans uh, and their families to Antioch. So this is like a combination of, uh, you know, Fort Lewis and the Jubilee development, it's, right? So, so lots of soldiers and, and big retirement communities. There was also a large garrison of active-duty Roman soldiers quartered there. And so it served as the, the governmental headquarters, the military command center for the southern part of the province of Galatia. It was also a cosmopolitan city. There was a rich tapestry there of, of Greek and Roman and Asian and Jewish cultural influences, which uh, also must have meant that they had a lot of really great restaurants. Mm-mm-mm. So great place to go if you if you like to eat. So Paul and Barnabas may have had a, a little time to rest and recuperate when they arrived because Luke doesn't tell us they went directly to the set, to the um, synagogue, uh, but rather that when the Sabbath day came, they entered the synagogue and sat down as part of the congregation. And uh, maybe you've never been to a synagogue service. Uh, synagogue service would really actually go something like this. It would begin with a, a recitation of the Shema, which I read earlier here, O Israel, the Lord uh, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength. And, and that would have been followed by some prayers and then two readings from the Scripture, one from the books of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then one from the prophets. And then uh, someone would stand, probably... Uh, one of the leaders of the synagogue or one of the elders of the congregation and bring uh, an expository sermon from God's word. Uh, And then the service would conclude with a blessing. It was also customary for a synagogue ruler to invite visiting rabbis to either preach or or simply to bring a word of encouragement uh, for the congregation, whether it was because of a prior conversation or the way that Paul was dressed that tipped off the leaders there that he was a rabbi. Verse 15 says that after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So apparently this happened during the during a synagogue service, right? And they sent this message to, to Paul and Barnabas. I 
It's probably the first recorded account of someone passing notes in church. Uh, so, uh, and, and Paul's reply probably sounded something like, put me in coach. I'm, I'm ready to play. Because Paul was always ready. He was always ready to bring the word of God. Peter wrote that if someone asks about your hope as a believer, you should always be ready to explain it. And uh, it was true then, and it's true now, that, that if you're available and you're willing, God will use you. All you have to do is open your mouth, and he'll, he'll fill your mouth with his words. You might stutter, you might stammer, but, but he'll use you. And uh, if he can use Balaam's ass, he can use you, right? He can use all of us. So in verses 15 to 22 then, Paul starts into this, his sermon, and and he does what is really a traditional form of, of Jewish preaching. We have other examples like this in the scriptures. But in verses 15 to 22, he goes from, he starts with the history of Israel, beginning with Abraham and, and going down to David. After the reading from the law and the prophets, it says the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Well, um, verse 16 says that Paul stood up and motioned with his hand. And I, I, I studied and studied and studied and researched and researched. I, I couldn't find what that motion with the hand even was. So it was probably, hey, right? No, I don't think it was that. Uh, and, nor do I think it was the Vulcan, you know, live long and prosper or, or the peace side. I don't think it was, it was any of those things. Um, I just don't know. But notice his greeting, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So from that greeting, we know that it was a, he was preaching to a mixed audience. That in this synagogue were both Jews and Gentiles, and the Gentiles were what was known in those days as God-fearers. We have already seen an example of a God-fearer in Cornelius, in the Roman centurion back in chapter 10. A God-fearer was simply a Gentile who had come to believe in the God of Israel, who joined the Jews in their worship and many of their traditions, but who hadn't hadn't taken the leap to be circumcised or, or baptized into Judaism. In verses 17 to 22, Paul's approach is similar to that of Peter on the day of Pentecost and uh, and of Stephen before he was martyred. There are some significant parallels between those three sermons. But he, he begins with a brief overview of the history of Israel, beginning with Abraham, and and his emphasis in this overview is on really on God's initiative of grace. It's, a, it's on what God was doing, so that in what follows, God is the subject of nearly all of the verbs uh, in this passage. God's pronouns, by the way, are he, him, and his. You, you might say, I don't see Abraham's name here in verse uh, 17. 
but it's there by implication. In Genesis 12, God called Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob twelve sons, the heads of the twelve tribes of Israel, or the fathers. And then he moves quickly to the 400 years of Israel's sojourn in Egypt, during which time he made them a great nation. It wasn't make Israel great again, it was make Israel great for the first time. Um, Because really when they arrived in Egypt, they were just a smattering of of families. But in Egypt, they became a a great nation. They just multiplied like guppies there, so that uh, there came a time when there were so many of them that Pharaoh was felt very threatened by them. And then he raised up Moses and led them out with his uplifted arm, that is, by his awesome power. And you remember those stories. Even if you've, if you've never read it in the Bible, you saw the prince of Egypt, right? And so, so you know um, about that awesome power of God. And for about 40 years then, it says he put up with them in the wilderness. And I love that expression, he put up with them. Um, because they were cantankerous and they were they were disobedient and they were rebellious. I was I was reading this message in the or this passage in the Message Bible the other day though, and and there uh, it's called that God forsaken wilderness. And I, I took a little exception at that because you, when you read the story, they weren't forsaken by God, uh, although maybe they should have been. Uh, they tested him in every possible way. Uh, he disciplined them severely on occasion. Uh, but it was his power and his love and his mercy and his grace that carried them uh, through that difficult time. They weren't forsaken by God. The fact that they weren't forsaken is demonstrated in uh, in the next verse where Paul adds, And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. So God brought them into a land of, into the land of promise under Joshua. He went before them. He fought their battles for them. And finally, he gave them rest in their land, a rest from their enemies and, and gave them the whole of the land of Canaan. After the death of Joshua, God raised up judges. By the way, uh, judges, there's the book of judges, right? In, in the Old Testament. And it, when I was a, a little boy, it was my favorite book of the whole Bible because it's full of swords and violence and, and and great stories of bloodshed. And I just loved that stuff as a little boy. It's great bedtime reading for a, for a little boy. Um, but um, the judges weren't royalty. They weren't elite people. They 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 didn't hold any official titles. They were just everyday people that God raised up, and he used them to preserve his people through a very difficult time. Most of them were or became military leaders, but uh, through them, God just continued to show his strength on behalf of his people. And then came Samuel, the last of the judges and the first prophet in Israel since Moses. It was during Samuel's lifetime uh, of service that the Israelites begged Samuel for a king. You know, it's a, they were like, like adolescents, all wanting to dress alike, you know, all, all wanting to talk alike. Then nobody, when you're an adolescent, you don't want to stand out from the crowd. You just, you just kind of want to be like everybody else. And, and really that's kind of what Israel was doing. They, their one desire was just to be like everybody else. In this case, like every other nation. And Samuel gave in finally to their demands and he, he anointed Saul, the son of Kish, um, 
Saul was a, a logical choice. He, he, uh, in every way gave the appearance of a strong king. He, Bible says he stood head and shoulders over all of the other men of Israel. He was tall. He was handsome. He was very masculine, but he had an obedience problem that ultimately disqualified him as king. And so he had his throne taken from him. And then God raised up David, a man whose, whose heart beat in time with God's own heart. Uh, who possessed a, a heart of faith and obedience, wasn't a perfect man by any stretch. Um, and yet he was a man who loved God, uh, who, who had a heart for God. And, and it was David then who killed Goliath, who in battle killed his ten thousands compared with Saul's thousands. And David, whose love for God and rich devotional life produced most of the Psalms. David, who had a passion to see the temple built in Jerusalem as the dwelling place of God among his people. And so he goes from Abraham to David, and then in verse 23, he makes a thousand-year leap from David to Christ, verses 23 to 25, of this man's, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. God promised King David that he would never lack a son to sit on his throne. And the Jews understood that the promised Messiah would be a descendant of David. He would sit on David's throne as the ultimate son of David. And the prophet Isaiah pointed forward to the son when he prophesied in chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. It's just a passage we usually only read at Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this, this son of David would be a son of God. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, see that? On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And then in Luke one thirty, we we read of the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary who would be the mother of that son of David, when he appeared to her in Nazareth and said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now listen to the rest of what the angel says. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. He'll be called the Son of God. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. In verse 23, Paul identifies Jesus as that son of David, the the Savior whom God has brought to Israel in fulfillment of the promise. And then in verses 24 to 25, he tells the congregation in the synagogue that, that Jesus is the one of whom John the Baptist prophesied, John the baptizer who's coming, he announced. And it's possible that that these Jews in Pisidian Antioch had known more about John than they actually knew about Jesus. 
And John said he considered himself unworthy to untie Jesus' sandals. Now think about that with me for a moment. It was, it was the job of a servant, a household servant, just a common slave, to untie his master's sandals when he came into the house. And John considered that he himself was not even worthy of that when it came to Jesus. And then in verses 26 to 37, Paul arrives at the climax of the message as he moves from rejection to resurrection, from Jesus' rejection by the Jews and his crucifixion at the directive of Pontius Pilate to his resurrection from the dead by the power of God. And along the way, he makes it clear that both Jesus' death and his resurrection were direct fulfillments of what God had foretold in Scripture. Follow along as I read, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up uh, with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up, did not see corruption. John begins verse 26 similarly to the way he began verse 23. In verse 23, he said, referring to David, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. And in verse 26, he adds, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. God has brought to Israel a Savior, And he sent to us the message of salvation. God sent both the person and the message. And over against that, in verses 27 to 29, he makes what what had to have been for them, and I think still for us, three really shocking statements. The Jews in Jerusalem, first of all, and their rulers didn't recognize their own Messiah when he came. Now, I imagine that to these Jews in Antioch, up there high in the mountains, um, the, the the Jews in Jerusalem and, and 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 their leaders were like the elite Jews, right? They were privileged Jews to live in the holy city. And Paul says of them that, that neither they nor their rulers recognized Messiah when he came. Neither did he says did they demonstrate any understanding of the message contained in the words of the prophets, which they had heard read in the synagogue every. Sabbath for their entire lives. Just think of that. And aren't they just like us? Because we hear the word of God taught a lot, right? And sometimes it just doesn't move us. In fact, it it just beads up and drips off like like, like rain on a waxed car. 
They didn't recognize Messiah when he came. Instead, they unwittingly, he says, fulfilled those words of the prophets. They acted to condemn their own Messiah, of whom the prophets had had taught them their whole lives, by condemning him to death, asking Pilate to have him executed, even though they knew, even though they knew he was innocent. You wonder about the moral development that was going on right? In their hearts. And then third, he says, they carried out all. Let me back up and and just restate that. They carried out all that was written of him. They were the ones who made it happen. And when they had done that, Paul says in verse 29, they took him down from the tree, which is a euphemism for the cross, and laid him in a tomb. And again, by this statement, I think Paul is is making clear, as as some of the other gospel writers and and, uh, the other epistles make clear, that the crucifixion had done its work. That Jesus, son of David, Messiah, Savior, was dead. He was dead, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. But God... The most encouraging two-word phrase in all the English language, right? But God. All this is going on. When I get upset about all of that, but God. The world's going to hell in a handbasket, but God. Maybe I'll make that the title of my message this coming Easter if we're still here on earth. But God. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. God raised him. People saw him. Over 500 of the disciples, they talked with him. They touched him. They ate with him. Uh, They're now his witnesses. They're still alive. You can meet them. They can testify to what they've seen and heard. Jesus is alive. And Paul said, that's the good news that we brought to you here in Antioch of Pisidia. It's the message that Christians have been proclaiming for the last 2,000 years. It's the message that that we are here in Olympia to proclaim. Then he quotes uh, here from Psalm 2, which is universally recognized as a messianic psalm. That is a, a psalm that describes and anticipates the person and the work of the Messiah, whom we now know to be Jesus, whom the Holy Spirit, speaking through David, identifies as the Son of God. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son today I have begotten you. In verses 34 to 37, Paul argues that Jesus, having been raised by God from the dead, will never again see corruption. As I was studying this this past week, I I kept thinking of that old uh, American tune, John Brown's body lies a molden in the grave. And and that's not going to happen to Jesus. His body won't rot. It won't mold in the grave. He's alive forever. And and Paul validates that claim by by a head-to-head comparison of Jesus with his ancestor David, again quoting two other prophets. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, 
no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. That's Isaiah chapter 55, verse 3, in the Greek translation known as the Septuagint. And therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. That's Psalm 16, verse 10. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, that is, he died and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And Peter said the very same thing in his sermon in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day, if you go to Jerusalem today, you you can see the tomb of David. In fact, it was in the news yesterday. There was a, a terrorist who killed a bunch of people just adjacent to David's tomb. Still there today. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. So then on the basis of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, Paul presents the promise of forgiveness and freedom. And here he reaches the pinnacle of his message. Personal, or forgiveness and freedom through personal faith in, in Jesus Christ. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Jesus Christ, God offers us the free gift of forgiveness. It's a free gift. Not because we deserve it. We don't. Not because we work hard to earn it. We can't. But but because Jesus already earned it for us at the cross. In fact, Paul says in another place that Jesus took your rap sheet. And you just imagine it as a scroll, right? And, and, and he lets it, he lets that scroll unravel and it just and, and, and begins to fill the room and then fill the house and all the hallways because your your rap sheet is just so stinking long. And, and Paul says, Jesus took all of that, the record of all of your sin, and nailed it to the cross that he bore in your, in his own body all of your sin and all of mine. By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. What is it that the law of Moses could never free us from? The guilt of our sin, the death of our sin, the condemnation of our sin. See, when, when you and I attempt to earn God's forgiveness by keeping his law, we run immediately into two brick walls, two, two fundamental problems. First, we can never keep it consistently, can we? 
And to add insult to injury, the Bible says that to be guilty of one part of the law is to be guilty of all of it. And you say, well, I'm doing pretty good in all these areas, but I'm just kind of struggling over here. And the Bible says you're guilty of the whole thing. There's no escape. And so because we're sinful human beings, our, our moral performance can never, ever, ever meet God's righteous standard. And the second problem, and Paul would write about this later, is that the law was never given to justify us before God. It was never its purpose. Uh, what a shock, right? Isn't that kind of shocking that the law was never given to justify us before God? It was given rather to condemn us, to demonstrate to us rather persuasively and, and with great finality that we can never keep it. And, and Paul said that the law was given like a school teacher to show us our sin and to lead us to the only one who could ever do anything about the fatal problem of our sin, and that is Jesus Christ, God's Son the only Savior. And so Paul presents a stark choice. Accept the forgiveness of sin through personal faith in Jesus or risk the uh, the loss of the offer. And he knows that the message of the gospel of forgiveness and justification through personal faith in Christ will be a hard sell for these Jews, these God-fearers. And so he closes his sermon with a quote from the prophet Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 5. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, you scoffers, you who are standing in disbelief, you who are rejecting this message, be astounded and perish and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. We use that expression in, in, in now, don't we? You're not going to believe this. Now you won't believe this. And the prophet says, you're not going to believe the message of the gospel, even if someone comes and tells it to you. Well, as I close this teaching this morning, I'd like to challenge you in two ways. Because first, I'd like to invite you, if, if you haven't really ever given consideration to the message of the gospel, to consider it now. We live in a culture whose, whose thinking has been co-opted by relativism and pluralism, so, so that as a culture, we've, uh, generally as a culture, we've kind of rejected the whole notion of, of objective truth, that something is either true or or um, in and of itself, or, or it's not. And, and instead, we've embraced a subjectivity that says that you can have your truth and I can have mine, so neither of us should contradict each other's truth, even if those two truths seem to be mutually contradictory. But what if there is such a thing as, a, as objective truth? What, what if Jesus Christ really is, as he claimed, the way, the truth, and the life? What if it really is true that no one comes to the Father but through him, again, as he himself boldly asserted? He said it, I didn't. What if there really is no other way to receive forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God except through personal faith in Jesus, as the Bible says? 
Are you willing to risk your eternal destiny by failing to take Jesus seriously? Are you willing to uh, just let it ride? I'm not asking you to, to make a decision about this this morning unless you're you're ready to, but I want to urge you to seriously consider the implications for your own life, for your own eternal destiny, because Jesus also said that each of us will stand before God and face a real judgment someday. It's either true or it isn't. I, I choose to believe it's true because Jesus said it. And then secondly, for you this morning who are believers in Jesus, I, I want to challenge you to think like an apostle, to think like a missionary. Both those words mean essentially the same thing. See, my hope and prayer for this study that we, from the beginning as we entered into the study of the book of, of the Acts of the, of the Apostles is that we would acquire along the way a missionary mindset because it's a missionary book. Paul and Barnabas uh, thought it worthwhile to embark on a potentially perilous journey across rugged mountains in order to bring the gospel to the Jews in Antioch. That, that was only part of Paul's story of risk and struggle. So I'd like to ask you this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus, what, what are you willing to risk in order to see people who are dying in their sins have the opportunity to believe in Jesus and receive the freedom that can be theirs when they receive that forgiveness? What are you willing to risk? What's it really worth to you to see the people in your family, the people in your sphere of friendships, people in your neighborhood, people in your community, people of our world know Jesus? Will you allow God to use you? Will you? regardless of what it costs, even if it might require personal risk and personal sacrifice and and personal loss. And then I wonder if you've personally taken the time to think through the message of the gospel so thoroughly that, that when the opportunity arises for you to share the gospel with someone who may have never heard it, you're prepared to respond. What is the gospel? It's It's that Jesus died for our sins as the scriptures said he would. That he was buried as the scriptures said he would be. That he was raised on the third day as the scriptures said he would be. And that, and because of that, in him, him alone can the twin problems of the sin that separates us from God and the fear of death that enslaves us be finally solved. It's that simple, really. You don't have to make it more difficult than that because because ultimately it's not about us. It's not even about our story. It's all about what he did and, and, and what then he offers to us as a result of his death and his burial and his resurrection from the dead. So I want to ask you, will you commit yourself today to think like a missionary and to to be proactive in sharing the gospel of Jesus with men and women, boys and girls who are headed for an eternity without him. Will you orient your life to that? Will you make that the ultimate priority? 
There's so many other priorities that compete for our time and our attention and uh, uh, the investment of our thought and, and our emotions. But I would suggest to you that there's no greater, no greater goal than that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this book of the Acts of the Apostles. Thank you for men like Paul and Barnabas who gave their lives at a great personal cost so that we today, so that we today might be recipients of the gospel, that they didn't obscure it, they didn't neglect it, they didn't avoid it, but they proclaimed it boldly. And because they did, it's come down to us today. May we live that way for for coming generations, that the world may know that there's a Savior who loves them, who died for them, and a God who has a, a wonderful plan and purpose for each of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.